I don't know how many of you watched the uh, Academy Awards last Monday night. A billion people did. And I reflected on the role of Dave Letterman in that uh, great extravaganza. You remember for weeks there was hype leading up to his role uh, in terms of being the MC of the awards ceremony. And his greatest task was to stand out in front of a billion people and a, an audience of his peers, all professionals, and he was supposed to be funny and make them laugh. And I just, because I'm sort of in the communication business here with him, I shuddered to think of the pressure on that man where the standards, the bar was so high, the expectations so incredible, there was almost no way this guy could win. Well, anyway, he gets out there and did his thing. And then if you remember, the papers the next day uh, sort of really criticized the entire award ceremony, saying the telecast was a delicious mess. And I imagined Dave Letterman getting up that morning, reading the reviews, and hearing that uh, the uh, critics were saying, well, he was, his he was off on his game, he was perspiring in terms of anxiety that he wasn't really doing the job. In other words, he to some degree failed. He didn't meet the expectations. And I reflected further and I have concluded that I think fear of failure is one of the greatest diseases here on our peninsula lifestyle. Because this scenario of the awards and Dave Letterman really is a parable of life in Silicon Valley, where failure in any form is our worst nightmare. If you listen to the two young people today, what did they say they were nervous about? Not being able to measure up down in Mexicali. Fear of failure. You see, our pride and our competency and our sense of self-worth seem to be on the line all the time in this area. And yet failure is a fact of life. No one can escape it. From losing at Little League when we're young to losing a job to losing a marriage, failure happens. And we have to somehow cope with it. Failure is part of our spiritual journey. And that's what we're going to deal with today. As Christians, none of us can cut and paste segments of our past, hoping the parts of the record that record our failures can be deleted. They're just part of us. They're there. As disciples of Jesus, we fight spiritual battles and we lose. We make promises and we can't keep them. So to encourage us, to help us have insight into coping with failure, we're going to look at Peter. He is an expert at failure. Remember he tried walking on the water and they were all in the boat and our Lord's out there walking on the water and Peter says, I'm coming, Lord, I'm going to join you. So he hops out of the boat, walks for a little while, sees a wave coming and starts to sink. And he said, Lord, save me, I'm sinking. And then this was a good one. Remember, he, he claimed he understood love and then they went to that uh, little Samaritan town that refused hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. And so he asked the Lord to call down fire from heaven and nuke the whole bunch of them. He didn't understand love yet. And now at the time in our text of our Lord's arrest, a time of great need in terms of Jesus, his faith collapsed. And he denied with vigor ever knowing Jesus. You see, time after time, Jesus took the broken pieces of Peter's weakness, his poor judgment, his cowardice, his impulsiveness, his inconsistency, and his downright sin, and he glued them back together again with this thing called his amazing grace. And he didn't just glue them back together. 
the most beautiful part of this story is he creates something brand new. He creates Peter the rock. And if there ever was a person who wasn't a rock, it was Peter, apart from Jesus Christ. So let's look at today's text and find the encouragement that I trust rests in it for you today if you struggle with baggage from the past and even sit here today feeling somewhat unworthy to be in church. The first lesson in this drama is a fact. Believers make mistakes, and we make big mistakes, colossal, whopper mistakes. Peter was impulsive, he was aggressive, he was immature, and hours before his arrest, as we said earlier, he promised Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. Well, all of us have moments when we've made ambitious promises to God and to those we love. Things go great for a while, but then in a moment of temptation or stress, we lose the battle. We fall back into the same traps, the same bondage, the same habits, and disappointed with our wings clipped, we feel helpless, we feel unworthy, we feel like Peter, who felt after denying his Lord, he just wanted to go out and weep. So he went out and wept bitterly. He felt crummy about himself. The guy with the big mouth and the shallow follow-through. As I studied this text, I realized I've been well acquainted with failure all my life. In almost every worship service, particularly last Sunday when Jay was preaching about coping with pressure and the things we've got to do, I, I, I hear a challenge and that makes me determined to get out of this service and I'm going to make some changes. But you know, in too short a time, I'm back to my old behavior patterns. And that is so frustrating. And I ask myself, how can I make promises? How can I be so absolutely sure this is what I want to do, this is what I want to be, and I break them so easily? And then a deeper question, how can God go on loving me and forgiving me in this scenario of failure and failure and failure, time after time, broken promises? If you read the scripture, we find failure is part of every honest Christian's experience. No one is exempt. Every biblical hero had failure as part of their biography, and I'm so delighted that the Bible is that honest. King David, how many times have we held him up? A man after God's own heart, somebody Jesus had a passion for. He was actually in the very genealogy of Jesus. And yet, here this man after God's own heart was a murderer and an adulterer, among other things. And then there's Abraham. This guy, this is really wild. He, in Romans, is held up as the epitome of what it means to have faith in God. Justification by faith. Because Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And yet, there, in every chapter of Abraham's life, he didn't trust God, if you trace down the story. He didn't trust him when he went into foreign lands with about his wife and all those different things. He failed in the thing that we call him strongest for, faith. So I, I guess what we're saying here is, happily, there's room in Christ's family for believers who make mistakes, even those who make big mistakes. And the idea that the church is for perfect people is a myth, as Jane so beautifully told us today. If it was for perfect people, this place would be empty. The facts are, Christians always have, and we still do make big mistakes, and we'll always make them. We never grow to the point where we're going to be perfect in Christ, and we're going to be a perfect church. A second lesson, though, from Peter's experience is, although Christians make big mistakes, Jesus offers forgiving grace greater than our sin. 
And I'm going to suggest that the reason we like Amazing Grace as a hymn is that we spend a lifetime trying to fully understand God's amazing grace. Depending on what background we come from, how we've been trained as a child, particularly if we were raised in a, in a tight, legalistic, reward, conditional type of environment, we'll spend a lifetime really trying to believe that God can forgive us when we don't measure up. In John's epistle, we read, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive our sins and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one of the most significant, exciting pieces of news in the world. When Christians confess sin, turn from it, we are exonerated in God's sight. We don't have to think about it anymore. It's gone forever. The slate is wiped clean. Our problem is that we tend to be far less gracious with ourselves when it comes to personal weakness than God is with us. And that's for a whole bunch of reasons that we won't go into to today in terms of our background and psychological conditioning and whatever. In Colossians, Paul says, Jesus took the charge list of sin accusing us and he nailed it to his cross. Meaning, in those days when a criminal was crucified, the charge against him was put on the cross and the payment was paid by the death of the person hanging on the cross. So if your sins are on that cross with Jesus, your sins are paid for. And you don't have to lug them around along with the guilt anymore. That's the good news of the gospel. You know, it, it, it's amazing to me that uh, people tend to deal with failure in two ways. Remorse or repentance. Those are the two alternatives. The same night, another guy did a horrible sin, Judas. Judas uh, betrayed his Lord, and he responded to his sin with what I'm going to call remorse. Remorse is hopelessness. It's despair. He took the silver and threw it in the temple. And what did he do? He had no concept that God could forgive something as heinous as he had committed. So he went out in hopelessness and hung himself. And that's the end result of despair when we get hung up and think we're unforgivable. On the other hand, Peter repented. And through repentance, he dared to believe that in spite of how serious his sin was, God could still forgive him. And he found a new beginning. I love this scene when Jesus meets Peter following his denial. There's not one word of rebuke from Jesus. I would have thought Jesus might have said something like this to his friend. Well, Peter, you were a big mouth again, weren't you? You're, you're really a coward when the heat's on. You said you'd stick with me and you didn't. No, Jesus didn't say that. We find him concerned about one thing. He's still interested in the relationship with Peter. So he simply asks him, Peter, do you love me? And when he heard that he did, basically Jesus said, you know, that's really all that matters. If you still love me, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to wash you off and let's get on with the journey and try again. Because the important thing is I want you to relate to me and I'll continue to put my power in you and you'll become something more than that denying coward the night of my betrayal. So rather than punish and reject his disciple, Jesus forgave him. And with an amazing end of the chapter, he said, I'm going to commission you to build my new church. Now, if we think logically, out of the 12, Peter probably wouldn't have been the one you and I would have chosen to be the pillar of his new church, but that's who Jesus selected. Shouldn't that give us an insight this morning that no matter how awful our sin might be, how we feel about ourselves, if we are truly sorry, we truly repent, the Bible says Jesus forgives and restores us, not once, not twice, not 12 times, but again and again 
to an infinite number. There is no limit to God's forgiveness. And that's difficult for many of us to understand. And that's why we live with guilt and lug baggage from the past around and sometimes sit in church and feel, I don't deserve to be here. But Peter understood it. And so by the time Jesus meets Peter in our text, he had already died for his failure and for yours and for mine. And I guess that's why Peter later wrote in his first epistle, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Notice the metaphor in here that Jesus is referred to as the shepherd because in our text back in John, Jesus commissioned Peter to take care of his sheep. And he knew that Jesus had died for his sins. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God forgives repentant people. One thing is certain. On Judgment Day, Peter's failures won't be even in the books. They won't be paraded in front of everybody as they have been for 2,000 years. They're gone forever. No failure, no matter how major, can permanently cripple the Christian. That's what I want us to understand today. A story is told, a true story, of a little boy whose job was to light the fire in the country's schoolhouse. One day the school burned and he was dragged out with major burns that devastated the entire lower half of his body. The doctor said first that he wouldn't live and then they said, well, he'll never walk. Well, this little guy did not want to die and he did want to walk. And so for years after he survived the ordeal, he worked at walking and then he worked at running just for the sheer joy of using his legs. In college, he made the track team. And then still later in Madison Square Garden, the young man who was not expected to survive, who would surely never walk and could certainly never hope to run, this determined young man, Dr. Glenn Cunningham, ran the world's fastest mile. Now, if determination can help one crippled young man to do something like that, can you imagine if we are energized by the Holy Spirit, what God can do for us if we sit here today thinking the fires of sin have permanently crippled us, permanently set us on the sideline, per permanently made it unable for us to serve God? It's when we struggle, <coughs> when we stumble and fall, Jesus will do for us what he did for Peter. That's the message of this text. He will provide forgiveness and a new beginning. What's amazing here is when Jesus looked at Peter after his denial, he saw a rugged fisherman stepping out of his boat in faith to walk on the water while the rest of the guys stayed in the boat and played it safe. He didn't see a failure. He saw Peter drawing his sword in the garden to protect the Lord he loved the night he cut off the guy's ear. And he saw the one man who was the first person ever to confess him as the Son of God. You see, our Lord, Lord knew it was courage, not cowardice, that led Peter to the scene of the trial where his denial took place. The other guys had all scattered. Jesus saw past Peter's sin to his heart's motivation. And understanding the struggle he waged before he fell, Jesus loved what he saw. Now, it is a fact. You and I are going to have moments of failure. Because in a sense, we're all hypocrites. None of us live up to what we profess to believe. We're a motley crew. We don't live up to our commitments and to our promises. And that's a fact of life. Anytime the church is criticized for being filled with hypocrites, I said, you're dead right. We are. 
Happily, requirements for being a follower of Jesus do not include sinless perfection, or none of us would be here. What Jesus wants is our love, followed by our heart's desire to repent and continue our journey toward becoming all that one day we will be in eternity. My progress as a Christian always has been, and probably yours is too, three steps forward, two back. But the second piece of good news for those who identify with Peter are these two cliches that are really true. Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. And Jesus knows all about us, and he loves us just the same. And I want you to know that today, because the devil's greatest weapon against you is you, his ability to make us regret the past, carry the baggage from the past, make us be down on ourselves, to despair about ourselves, and that wreaks havoc in our Christian lives. And that leads us to a third lesson from the text. Jesus uses people who have made mistakes. Isn't it fantastic? The next time we see Peter, he is boldly standing before multitudes with courage, preaching the gospel, the Jesus, with such power that thousands are coming to faith. He's no longer cowering in the corner. He became the pillar upon which the Holy Spirit built the church. He came back from failure full of enthusiasm to lead as a wounded healer, as a broken person. He knew about grace but he wasn't going to cower in the back of the church and remain a spiritual outcast for the rest of his life. This is what God's grace does for a person. God uses forgiven disciples because, you know what? Those are the only kind he has. Many of you were part of a church family. I've heard your stories. Part of a church family before you came here. And something happened in your life, and you made a big mistake, and you were no longer welcome in that church because that church sort of had an atmosphere. As long as everything's okay in your marriage and with your kids, fine. But if it falls apart, you don't fit anymore. I might say a church like that isn't the church, not the church of Jesus. It was not without coincidence Peter would exhort readers in his epistle, above all, hold unfailing your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus asked, Peter, do you love me? That's what he was concerned about after failure because that love covers everything Peter did and everything you and I did. The best news I can give you today, if you've made big mistakes and you can't forgive yourself, is look what happened to Peter. If you wonder what Jesus feels about you, look how Jesus feels about Peter. God still loves you as much as he ever did before you sin, because you see, God's love for you doesn't go up and down with your performance. You have done nothing God cannot forgive. Because of Jesus, no matter how far down you are, you can start again. God can still use you. Failure's only power over a forgiven Christian is to make us believe that we've blown it so badly God can never use us again. Failure is not final defeat for the Christian. Those are the truths jumping out of this text. When Jesus called Peter the rock, he wasn't a rock yet. He had a long journey, and he, if we had the continued biography of Peter, I'm sure he made mistakes up to the day of his death. But Jesus could see what Peter would eventually become, and he gave him a name representing that person he would be. And today, Jesus challenges you and me with this same truth. He's given us a name of what we'll be, and we're on a journey toward becoming that. And we don't have to stay crippled by sin. Like Dr. Cunningham, who pushed through the crippling effects of his burns and won, 
Jesus is calling us today to press on toward all that God has called us to be, no matter what impact sin has already had on our life. It's not fatal, as much as Satan would have us believe it is. Victory is still possible in Jesus. Immoral Christians become moral. Honest, dishonest Christians become honest. Selfish Christians become self-givers. This is the good news. You don't have to be what you've been. And you may not make the change overnight, but you're becoming. And one day you will be like Jesus. That's a promise from Scripture. My challenge to us, whatever changes you need to make in your life, start today. That's why Jesus has you in church. Repent, turn from your sin, and let's get on with it. Let Jesus wash you off with his forgiving grace and leave here and make a new beginning. Don't sit there defeated. Don't sit there hopeless. Don't sit there as an outcast. That's the message from Jesus. There's an old Baptist chorus I still sing in the shower. It summarizes this message of God's amazing grace. My staff told me not to sing it, so I'll just say it. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But then the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. And when nothing else could help, love lifted me. That's what's going to lift you today if the Holy Spirit has given you an insight into just how much Jesus loves you in the midst of your failure. The Bible says even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Or in the words of that great hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we want to shout hallelujah at this Easter season that because you died and were resurrected, we can proclaim this message of hope to people like us. Help us. Give us eyes to see and hearts to respond to this fact that your love can lift us from the most awful mire, the deepest pit. And may that truth hit home to every person who needs it here in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.